Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Biggest Table. I am your host, Andrew Camp, and the idea behind this podcast is to explore the table, food, eating, and hospitality as an arena for experiencing God's love and our love for one another. And today, I'm thrilled to welcome Michael Frost as my guest. Michael is an internationally recognized Australian missiologist and one of the leading voices in the missional church movement. His books are required reading in colleges and seminaries around the world, and he is much sought after as an international conference speaker. Since 1999, Dr. Frost has been the founding director of the Tinsley Institute, a mission study center located at the Morling College in Sydney, Australia. He has also been an adjunct lecturer at various seminaries in the United States. He is the author or editor of 19 theological books, the best known of which are the popular and award-winning The Shaping of Things to Come, Exiles, The Road to Missional, and Surprise the World. Frost books have been translated into German, Korean, Swedish, Portuguese, and Spanish. And for 12 years, he was the weekly religion columnist for the Manly Daily and has had articles published in the Washington Post, the Tennessean, the Charlotte Observer, Le Monde, and other publications. He is one of the founders of the Forge, Miss- Forge Mission Training Network and the founder of the missional Christian community Small Boat Big Sea, based in Manly in Sydney's north. He is also well known for his protests against Australia's treatment of refugees, some of which have resulted in his arrest by the NSW police, as well as his advocacy for racial reconciliation, foreign aid, and gender equality. Thanks for joining me, Mike. Thanks, man. That was a very fulsome introduction. That was great. <laughs> yeah, it's just great to have you here and um, excited to talk about the table as you've seen it um, exhibited throughout Christian history, but also as you see the church moving forward in today's culture. Uh, but you're in Australia, so what's what's the food like in Australia? How does the table operate in Australia culture? Oh, what's food like in Australia? Um... Well, we're a former British colony, so my grandparents would have eaten very kind of British style, you know, roast vegetables and Yorkshire pudding and steak and kidney pies and all that kind of stuff. But actually, you know, Sydney is in a kind of subtropical zone or a very temperate, moderate kind of uh, um, environment. Um, And so really, uh, you know, more recently, I think we've discovered our role as part of Southeast Asia. So there's a lot of kind of fusion cooking around kind of fusing Asian styles and and uh, and uh, products and ingredients um, with kind of Western kind of ways of, of uh, food preparation. And so, yeah, you know, lots of beef, seafood, lots of outdoor eating, barbecues. Um, I think, you know, in terms of international cuisine i'd guess it would say japanese and thai food are probably right. most sought after but yeah look we have mcdonald's and and kfc here as well <laughs> yeah no the western or the american food has penetrated every place it seems although Sometimes- interestingly uh and only recently has kind of um American style barbecue and kind of southern cooking. You're starting to see some of that come to Australia, yeah. Because if anyone asked what was American cuisine like, we would say it's it's fast food, it's hamburgers and what have you. But yeah, actually, we're kind of more recently discovering uh, some of the best of American cuisine. Awesome. No, appreciate that. So you recently came out with your newest book called "Mission Is the Shape of Water," 
in it, you look back at Christian history and sort of explore different themes that the church can um, embody in today's culture. What Give us a brief summary of what stood out to you from that book. Yeah, so the idea, the title kind of says it all. It's both kind of a bit intriguing and also when people think about it, it makes perfect sense that water never changes its inherent properties. It's always H2O, but it is shaped according to whatever container it uh, it finds itself in. So it could be shaped like a, a bottle on your desk or it could be shaped like a lake. And so uh, I say that the mission of God's people which is to alert the world to the universal reign of God through Christ, never changes and hasn't changed throughout the last 2,000 years. I'd even say that even prior to um, the Christian era, I would say that the kind of the old covenant people, uh, it it was the same mission in many respects, to alert people to the reign of Yahweh, uh, to his universal reign. We would say to, to alert people to the reign of God through Christ. But it's the same thing. God's people have always been charged with this mission to let people know that there is one God and that one God uh, rules over all, and that his rule is peaceable, joyous, just. It includes healing and joy and a new kind of society and uh, an experience of the immediate presence of Jesus, uh, of God through Jesus. And so that doesn't change. It's always been our task. But throughout history and in different parts of the world, that mission has been shaped by the context, by the cultural concerns of the time. And so what was happening uh, in terms of the mission of the church in uh, New Zealand in the 19th century would be different to what happened in Europe in the 10th century and different again to what happened in the British Isles in the 8th century and so forth. So, you know, there may be debates around whether worship should change or what leadership looks like or some of the kind of more internal ecclesiological concerns. There are some some uh, traditions like the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church who, who haven't really changed that much. Uh, you, you know, the listeners to this might be part of another denomination of some kind that doesn't change much. It's internal kind of structures or, or policies or uh, life. But mission is that external drive, that push outwards into culture. And so naturally, culture then becomes a conversation partner in what that mission looks like. And so um, mission is the shape of water is, you know, let's remind ourselves what the mission of God's people is, but let's be free to recognize that it's going to look differently in different contexts. You know, and looking back at Christian history is not always popular, it feels like, in today's culture just because of all the skeletons. So what are you trying to hope to unearth by looking back for God's people? Yeah, good question. Um, Because, you know, I think this happens less these days, but more classic examples of Christian books on Christian history just kind of lionize these kind of great heroic figures who did amazing things. And we now know, I mean, there were great people who did selfless and beautiful work. But um, we also know that it's very difficult to disengage Christian mission in the 19th century from the impulses and agendas of imperialism and colonialism. And we also know that there were great abuses perpetrated by groups like the Jesuits and and others. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, in the 20th century, uh, we know of the various abuses and scandals in the church. So, 
I think people now are very conscious of the kind of darker side of, of the history of the church, as, as you suggest. But it is important that we develop some kind of balance of being able to say, look, we do recognise that, you know, Hudson Taylor and David Livingstone and William Carey and you know, these kind of celebrities from the 19th century were operating in the context of, in, in their case, British colonialism. And there's no two ways around that. That was the context in which they found themselves. Uh, certainly colonialism, Western colonialism in China was a little more fraught as a as a system, but definitely in India and in Africa and places like that. And definitely the, before them, the, um, the, the Portuguese and the Spanish missionaries to, to the Americas. But owning it and recognising it and acknowledging it, that that was the context in which they were operating and discovering that even within systems that are oppressive or broken or racist or cruel um, or greedy, um, even within those systems, God has raised up selfless, beautiful people to do remarkable things uh, that they didn't even know were remarkable when they were doing. No, for sure. Yeah. No, and I loved it that you talk about that your real goal is to help normal Christians realize that God doesn't need the heroic figures. He just needs us to do our part. You know, you write in the intro that mission is like water and that it flows most effectively when hundreds of thousands of nameless, faceless Christians humbly submit to the task of contributing their bucket to the torrent. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And to recognize that God kind of uh, gathers up all those little buckets and, and moves history in a particular direction in some form or another. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's um, it's helpful for us to to have our imaginations freed by looking at history. Uh, often when people talk to me about, you know, what's been done in the past and, you know, we need to be free of the past and we've got to innovate and be different from the past, they're really only talking about the last, you know, 30 to 50 years, Andrew. I mean, that's pretty much their view of the past. And then maybe depending on what, what kind of tradition you're from, you might know a bit about Calvin or a bit about Luther, or and then you jump all the way back to the early church. And so I think having a good, healthy Christian memory, kind of knowing kind of the, the tributaries that the, the mission has flowed through actually frees us. It encourages us and frees us to actually to be genuinely innovative, to be bold in our own contexts, to not feel as though we're breaking out of just the last 50 years, but that now is the time for us to figure out what the shape of mission looks like uh, in this in this day and age. And so I had a reader uh, make a comment to me saying, I don't really get into history much, but I really enjoyed it. But the best thing he said was, I feel really hopeful about the future of the church. And that's a pretty rare thing, actually, these days. Uh, certainly, you know, among evangelicals and Protestants and people like that, there's genuine, generally a sense like, woe is us and numbers are falling and, you know, we're feeling increasingly marginalised in the West and uh, there's not much hope. But actually, you know, the church has been through this before at different parts of the world. The church has been like on its knees in various places of the world at different eras and epochs. And and yet the river keeps flowing, the stream keeps keeps bubbling away. And so, yeah, I think I think that this book is actually a really encouraging book, which is a bit unusual for me, Andrew, because I often write books that can be a bit more um, polarising for people. You either love them or you hate them. But it seems as though so for some, I'm, I'm in my 60s and I've finally written a book which is encouraging and full of optimism and hope. <laughs> 
No, yeah, I, I find your writing very hopeful. Um, and just maybe, you know, coming from a younger generation where I wasn't raised in a Christian nation per se, right? Like it wasn't the heyday of the 70s and the 80s. You know, I I do have hope. And so, you know, you talk in one chapter about unearthing the gospel and the need to unearth a new gospel, maybe not a new gospel, but a more robust gospel for today's age. What, what did you, what do you mean by, by that? Yeah. One of the things I say, that's in a later chapter where I say, you know, we're not today introducing in the West, we're not today introducing the gospel to an un, un evangelized nation. I mean, no matter what people tell you about the need to do evangelism, most, in your case, most Americans have some rudimentary understanding of the basic ideas of the gospel. doesn't mean they're Christians, but, you know, this is not new news for them. But the point that I make in that chapter is that actually the gospel in America and in my culture, in my country, actually goes deep, but it's become buried um, by the advances and, and shifts toward individualism and secularism and humanism, consumerism and all of those worldviews that have kind of been layered over the top of it. And now it's actually about digging into our culture in order to unearth, not to introduce something new, but to remind people of something which is buried there, which actually shaped their culture and made them uh, who they are. And um, I have an experience of doing this uh, with a group of students, uh, literally kind of unearthing in a way, a rediscovery of kind of the, the, the kind of the essential elements of what it is to be church. I took a group of students on a study tour of Europe and we went to Pompeii and I wanted to do this not because we know that there was a Christian community in Pompeii, although there is debate about that, but whether there was or not, I wanted them to go to an an ancient city that had been kind of frozen in time, as it were. Whenever you go to other ancient cities, you see ruins and what have you. But here's a city kind of intact, which has been, as it were, frozen in aspic, you know, and unearthed. And so you can walk down cobble streets and walk into people's homes and go into the forum and the market. And you can really feel like, ah, oh, this is what it would be like to have been in a Roman city somewhere. And I had a, an historian from the UK join us and he walked us around the city and he said, what would it have been like if there had been a church in this setting? And he took us into a villa which had various apartments off a central courtyard. And he said, more than likely, the Christians would have met in this courtyard. They would have, I mean, it's a communal space for all the apartments off this courtyard. But, you know, they would have said, oh, well, tonight, you know, Maximus is having his his meeting. And so they'd pull out a big table and Christians would come and they would gather. He took us to a takeaway food uh, restaurant, like um, like, a, like an L-shaped bench with big holes in it in which big vats would sit and food would bubble away. And you'd take your receptacle and have it kind of filled and then you'd take that to your, your Christian gathering. And you'd sit at this table surrounded by people in these apartments who may or may not want to join you. And he explained to us that this is not a bizarre thing for ancient people because that was what ancient guild meetings were like. I mean, the silversmiths and the, uh, the sellers of purple cloth and various other merchants, uh, they would do the same thing. If they lived in one of those apartments, they'd kind of, as it were, kind of book the, the central courtyard. They'd pull out their big table. Their fellow silversmiths would come 
with their pots of food, put them on the table, and then they would eat those meal, that meal as a communal meal. And in the midst of that, they would like uh, maybe slaughter a small animal or a bird. They would say various prayers to the gods of silversmithing or the gods of whatever their particular um, vocation was. Uh, there may be kind of incantations and uh, um, and then a meal, and then they'd talk about the price of silver or whatever they talk about as as business people. But his point in telling us this was that a guild meeting was always made up of men in a particular um, industry, so generally middle class to upper middle class men, nearly always citizens of the city, uh, and um no other people were welcome. Slaves were not welcome unless someone was serving them in some way. Women were not welcome unless a woman happened to be there serving them in some way. No one from a different socioeconomic background or even from a different vocation could be there. It was a homogenous meeting. And so if you lived in one of those apartments and you saw that this guy is holding his guild meeting, you would pay it no mind because it's like, well, I'm not a silversmith or I'm not, I'm a slave or I'm a Jew or I'm an African or whatever the case may be. I'm a woman, you know. I would, I just wouldn't even register that it was happening. I would walk right past it when I went home that night. But the Christian meetings looked very similar around tables with food. So when you first walked into a courtyard like that, you might think, oh, it's a guild meeting. But then when you looked again, there are women and men sitting at this table side by side, not women serving men, men and women together around the table. And then you would see that there are slaves and free people sitting around that table, that there are citizens and non-citizens, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor. It would be, I can't emphasize this enough to you, Andrew, it was unheard of. No one had ever seen anything like this before. You would like literally do the double take, like, what is this? And there was food on the table and they were eating, but there was also a ritual, not the slaughtering of animals or the burning of incense or smoke going up to the sky, hoping that the gods might hear them. They did something with bread and with wine in the middle of their gathering. They had to listen carefully to figure out what that all meant. But it was intriguing and interesting. And here's the other thing that the early Christians would do is when they saw you come home to your apartment, they would call out to you and they'd say, Andrew, have you eaten tonight, brother? You know, have you prepared your meal already? We have more than enough. Come, eat our, eat our meat, eat our bread, drink our wine. You're welcome at this table. Now, you were never welcome at a guild table. And so you might seek to join that meal and eat that food. And then they would say to you, like, um, Jesus is present at this table. He is present here now. There's no God high up in the sky. I'm sorry, God is not just up high up in the sky or far away from us that we desperately hope that he might shower his blessings on us as silversmiths. He eats with us. We eat the gospel in the, in the bread and the wine as part of a, a love feast. Now, I think it's Stanley Howas who says that the early Christians didn't conquer the uh, Roman Empire with swords or with spears, but with tables. It was the table... This radical new experiment in a whole new way of being human uh, that like literally turned places upside down because they were intoxicating, they were intriguing, they were bizarre. And so, you know, walking through a ruin and unearthing that, going to the takeaway food place, going into a courtyard, trying to imagine Christians if they'd met here, looking at the apartments around and seeing why Paul gives advice to the early church about if you're going to speak in tongues, interpret it. 
because there may be non-believers sitting there at the table or they might just be like literally just over there in that apartment. Like Paul assumes that the meal would actually be in a, in a public slash private kind of space. Um, it makes sense of all sorts of things about, you know, when you meet, some will bring a psalm, some will bring a song, some will bring a word. This idea that there's this collective gathering around food which creates a whole new kind of society with Christ seated at the center of it all, very present in the in the context of this feast, being experienced through the bread and through the wine and through through worship, and that that actually becomes um, a, a movement, a spontaneous movement across Asia Minor and then into Northern Africa and Southern Europe, which changes the whole Roman Empire, and so. I'm sorry I've gone to the Roman Empire, but I think that in the American Empire, if I could put it that way, there are stories to be unearthed too about the the way in which table fellowships like that literally made America and need to be unearthed and rediscovered. Wow. I love that story of, you know, the the gospel penetrated the Roman culture through the table. Um, I'd be curious, in in your study of the history, when did we lose the centrality of the table? We got given all the all the Roman temples. I mean, once Constantine became the emperor, and after the Edict of Milan and what have you, um, essentially it was like, here, cleanse these temples, and you Christians can have them. And I mean, literally, if you read historians like Eusebius and people like that, I mean, he's just his jaw is just slack jawed at this idea that like, surely we are taking over the empire because now I've just been given this temple of Diana and we cleared out all the kind of statues and why we've got this marble building. Like you can imagine why they would be just like, wow, like it's happening. The whole world is becoming Christian. But little did they realize that what that then did was like reshaped the way the early church started to meet. And as it started to formalize itself as a kind of organ of society, uh, meeting in temples, not around tables, kind of changed the, those dimensions. I mean, that didn't last long because then the, the empire in the West collapses. But I'd say that that's what kind of stopped that that gathering around, this organic meeting around tables that, that changed Rome. So how do we reclaim then the table? Yeah, it's into- a very good question, right, because our tables are not public slash private affairs are they? they're private affairs right. we meet in our homes and doors closed and if you're invited you're welcome to come i don't think we can re uh shape our society into a kind of a roman style society and definitely in parts of the world you don't want to eat outdoors particularly in winter yeah. um, i just mentioned before that australians you know we can eat outdoors a pretty good chunk of the year but there are lots of parts of the world where that's just not the case so I would suggest that we need to find, if not weekly ways of doing it, you know, regular ways of of having kind of public feasts, whether they're, now it depends on your your particular culture, particular place in America, but whether they happen to be in pubs or, you know, at big outdoor tables during the summer and places like that. I've heard of not just churches, but I've heard of, um, of, uh, you know, community groups in places like Oakland, California, just like fill up a whole laneway with one gigantic table, hundreds of people sitting at a table eating together. Mm. Now, you're not talking to the person at the other end of the table when there's hundreds there, but it's a symbol of us being around one table. And I think Christians should rediscover this in the in the times and places that, that they can 
do those kinds of gatherings in kind of outdoor sort of settings. I went to a church in um, San Diego years ago um, called uh, the Border Church, which like is in, in Friendship Park in San Diego, right up against the border wall. Um, they set a table up and they push it up against the big, I mean, it's this big metal wall. Uh, they set this table up against the wall. And on the other side in Tijuana, um, Christians, the other half of the congregation set a table up on the other side of the wall. So in effect, if you could send a drone up and look down, it's one table divided by this enormous border wall. And mm-hmm. they gather in the park in on the San Diego side, uh, as do their brothers and sisters on the Tijuana side. And they have church as they consider themselves to be one table church and uh, they break bread and drink wine in jesus name um the pastor who took me there Guillermo navaretti led uh it's so poignant knowing that you can just see through the the chain mail the kind of the the, um, the the crisscross effect of the the metal wall you can just see figures through there knowing that this meal is eaten with a massive wall right down the middle of it but i found something incredibly powerful about that even though our world builds walls, even though our whole society everywhere is is made up of wall building, this little defiant congregation split in two by that wall will meet at that wall every week and will break bread and eat together in Jesus' name. And then they end the service. I actually think that they've strengthened this wall since I was there. But when I was there, they would put their pinky fingers through the little holes. And the, the kind of passing the piece was that people on the other side would touch Pinky fingers. That's their way of, hmm. of of touching each other in the context of a meal. As I said, I think they've even strengthened that fence now or thickened it or something where that's not even possible to do. But I love the defiance of that table. I mean, the table we sometimes think is a gentle place, but sometimes it can be like that. It can be a defiant and powerful holdout against the the, um, the world that tells us we have to be divided. Yeah, because in your book, Surprise the World, you mentioned that the table is the great equalizer of all relationships, Um, you know, where it does break down those walls, even, you know, at that border church where there is a literal wall, walls are being destroyed. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I just think that's so beautiful of what the table is, the possibility of the table and what it can accomplish in today's polarization. Yeah, yeah. I often say to my students, uh, if I was to ask you to come to my home, share a meal with me at my table, how would you feel? And they all like sheepishly say, oh, I would be honoured. Oh, wow, what a privilege. And I'd be like, no, 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 like how would you actually feel? And they're like really intimidated, really nervous. Um, so you're my professor, like and you're old enough to be my father or grandfather. Um, it doesn't feel very equal. You know, I would be really nervous about coming to your home for a meal. But have you ever been to someone's home from you? your boss, your professor, someone you know you feel a bit intimidated by or not equal to, and you sit at a table? There's something really, I mean, unless the host is a jerk, I mean, there's just something really quite beautiful about the way we just find this great equalizing set of relation. We discover, you know, our boss or our professor or whoever it might be, it's just an average guy, and he's telling some grand story, and his wife is saying, well, honey, it wasn't quite like that you know i mean that's just what happens in every family or you know his kids disrespect him or the dog poops in the corner or you know whatever i mean it's um 
that's life. And we discover over food more often than not that there is a kind of commonality about humankind and that we aren't also different to each other. And I think that was the beautiful thing about the early church. I mean, I mean, Paul codifies it in a way by saying on a couple of occasions, you know, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, no Scythians, no, you know, um, he lists all these kind of outsider types, if you like, and no, now we're one. Um, so he articulates that, but that was already part of the early church that, like, of course, I'm sitting right next to a Scythian right now, and there's no difference between him or her and me. And so that's not always experienced in traditional churches where we sit in pews and we don't really get to know each other. And there are certain people who we can still feel very intimidated by in our congregations. Uh, we think they're more holy or more godly or more learned or more whatever than us, and we don't approach them. They're older than us, whatever the case may be. And I think, you know, we're clearly not doing it right if church is not, the gathering of the church is not actually breaking down those kind of borders or those walls and, and fashioning a new kind of society. I mean, when you look at all the um, prophecies about the day of the Lord in the book of Isaiah, as you say, um, uh, what do they talk about? What's the kingdom of God like? You know, it's the year of the Lord's favor. It's justice. It's uh, it's binding the brokenhearted. It's good news to the, the poor. It's the freeing of captives and all that kind of stuff. But also, it's a new kind of society, a new kind of family. I mean, what they're dreaming of is we won't be a society like any others. We won't be like the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Assyrians or... We won't be. We're just, we're not like them. We'll be a whole new kind of different kind of society. Debts will be cancelled. Land will be kept fallow every 50 years. There'll be this extraordinary vision of a new sense of, of what people can be. Now, Israel never lives up to that. But then when Jesus opens the scroll of Isaiah 61 and reads from it, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of that in me, what Israel dreamed of and hoped to be you can be and will be. And yet we as Christians have also continued to fall short of that in so many ways. Um, and then at the very end of the Bible, you know, Revelation 21, you've got John saying, what, what does he see? He sees a great city coming down from heaven, you know, a city prepared like a bridegroom, a place of justice. And like it's like Christ is going to bring everything Isaiah hoped for, everything Jesus said he would fulfill. It is coming and our task is to plant seeds of that here in this world, to, to, to attempt to be those kinds of people uh, as empowered by the Spirit of God. And I think, you know, that, you know, your podcast and the fact that you're wanting to explore the issue of table and food and hospitality, it's an essential, not just a, a nice thing for churches to, to be doing, it's essential to the very work of the people of God. Oh, I appreciate that word, yeah. And I, you know, as you're talking, I'm remembering a, a dinner I had um, we, when we were living in Park City, Utah, we got to know some Latinos because my wife is fluent in Spanish and they invited us over for a birthday dinner. And I was the only non-Spanish speaking person there. And yet I left feeling more loved and more cared for and more accepted um, than at most other parties I had been to. And it was just one yeah. of those beautiful instances where the table broke down all cultural yeah. Not you know, it didn't break down culture, but it broke down any barriers, even despite the language barrier. That's nice. Actually, I was in uh, I was in Georgia a, a years ago, and 
these two uh, old old Baptists or Presbyterians, I can't remember what they were, but um, older guys who, as they talked, it became pretty clear they were pretty wealthy, successful, retired men, and but they had a real heart for mission and, and wanted to serve God in their retirement. And they told me this beautiful story. They said, we tried everything to serve refugees in our community. We felt like, oh, that's what God wants us to do. So, you know, we we tried to build things and start things and launch things and fund things and 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 refugees were very supportive and encouraged not supportive, they were very thankful and grateful for our efforts. But we didn't get to connect with them at all. Like we didn't have any relationships with them, even though like I've been on the you know, the I the treasurer for the Burmese Refugee Society or I you know, I'd volunteered at this program or I'd launched this thing or that thing. It, I wouldn't have said any of them were our friends. And then he said it suddenly came to us like food, the table. And so they asked the Burmese if they would teach them how to cook Burmese food. And they mm. said, you know, we've eaten at some of your events. We love your food. Could you teach us? And these guys, they had big fat hands with big fat fingers. And they were like, you know, I, I, I can barbecue, but I can't even, you know, cook American food, he said. But we went and volunteered. And, of course, we couldn't do it. We looked ridiculous. You know, we couldn't cut things properly. We got things wrong. We tried to say the words of the ingredients when they told us we got them wrong. And the Burmese were laughing their heads off at us. We looked ridiculous. But he said, that's what made the connection. Like, hmm. When we humbled ourselves, not just to eat food with them, but to, in a way, lower ourselves, for, to make them the experts, to make them the one giving something to us, not just giving us food, but teaching us how to prepare food. And I just found it such a touching story. And now they have regular Burmese cooking classes where they invite all these all their American friends and wives and what have you to come and learn how to cook Burmese food. And it was the actual preparation of food, not just the eating of it, that was the really beautiful equaliser in that sense. I mean, one of the most famous dinner churches in America is um, one of the first, was St. Lydia's in Brooklyn. And and I always like, I've never been there, but one of the things I liked about that was that they required you, when you arrived at a certain time, that wasn't in time for the meal, that was in time for the food preparation. So you would turn up at the time it starts and you'd be given a peeler and some potatoes or you'd be given a knife and some carrots so that actually preparing the meal was part of the, the event itself. Then you would all sit around tables and eat it and there was a liturgy that would go along with that. And I, and I thought, yeah, that's that's really clever. Like actually you, if you and I meet on that night and we're shoulder to shoulder peeling potatoes, there's something kind of powerful that happens between us. Yeah, no, you're forced to talk more. You're forced to laugh at each other, you know, and laugh with each other. And I love that story about them going to the Burmese versus expecting the Burmese to come to them. Yeah. How do we enter into those spaces knowing that in the past we as Christians have always expected people to come to us, but it feels like the mandate now is we need to to enter into spaces as guests, not as hosts. Yeah, and to practice holy curiosity, to like ask why, what what is this food or why do you eat this or how does that go? What's the history of eating? You know, just to be genuinely curious about the people that we that we go to. Where else are you seeing the table reemerge as you've been part of the missional movement, as you've interacted with Christians across the globe? What are you seeing the table reemerge, or are there themes that are 
to give us hope? Yeah, yeah, there is. I mean, you know, Leonard Sweet, uh, an old friend of mine, uh, he says, if you want to know what God is doing in America today, check out the dinner church. And I mean, dinner churches are popping up all over the place. Some of them are like St. Lydia's, like actual meals. You come together, you prepare a meal, you sit at the table, you eat it, and you, you there's, a, there's a liturgy that mm-hmm. you enter into. In some cases, some churches are doing a hybrid thing, so they sit in, in pews or in, in rows uh, for, say, three Sundays of the month, and then the fourth they take out all the chairs and bring in tables and you sit around tables. There's still a, in that setting, there's still a kind of a platform, if you like, there's still a place out the front that's led. So there's kind of hybrid versions of this, but but dinner churches are, you know, popping up all over the place. In Australia, they tend to be called simple church. Uh, some simple churches don't include a meal or a table. They that might be in a, in a, a, a living room around, you know, on couches and what have you. But um, uh, I think that the dinner church or micro church or simple church, as various names for it is actually kind of really bubbling away. And in Australia especially, I think it's the same in America, something's happening there. It's starting to kind of really get get traction. Now, the thing about that is they don't need to pay a pastor. They don't need to put anyone on staff. It's a bunch of Christians gathered together around mm-hmm. a table or a bunch of tables and, and eat a meal. And so sometimes we don't hear about it because they don't have kind of champions, as it were, pastors who tell the story and start websites and get the get the word out there. But I think there is an invisible movement happening around the table church or the simple church that I think is really uh, interesting. Um, there's also the uh, micro church movement. I don't know if you're familiar with Tampa Underground and various churches like that. So it was, um, it was really um, pioneered by a church called Tampa Underground where they don't so much do it. I mean, the microchurches could eat a, a beer or be around a table, but the real difference there is that each microchurch has a missional project or calling to which they're committed. And the gathering together as a larger group is optional. They would much prefer that you find your sense of identity and community in a smaller group that has a real heart for, say, the Burmese refugees or for ministering to young people or caring for your neighbours or whatever the case may be. So that the kind of drive mission has been caught to the DNA of these micro-churches. But they also recognise, hey, it's great to get together with a big group of people and just sing your head off and, and laugh and just feel like God is doing something great in the world. So, yeah, come along to the, the, the bigger thing. Well, now that's really – they've been doing that for a long time now and it's now – kind of rolling out in other parts of the world. So there's now Kansas City Underground and um, hmm. I can't remember some of the other places, but it's beginning to, to roll out as a movement as well. So the recovery of small, nimble, missional, intimate communities of Christians committed to serving people beyond themselves, and I think that's a, a very exciting prospect. In your book, you talk about the church needs to rethink what it means to win and what it means to have power. Like this movement towards the margins, is that where the dinner church can flourish? Do you see that? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. And I think that I thought you were going to ask me, 
is that in reaction against a church which is so a, a traditional church which is so coveted kind of political power and influence and and size and muscularity mm -hmm. and and I would say yes to that if that had been your question too. I suspect that there are a lot of people thinking, oh, I don't know that I can reform this thing that has become so you know, hungry for influence and political power. Uh, or my pastor is totally devoted to those type of things. Um, maybe the movement then is out to, you know, not in reaction, not with anger, but, you know, hey, all power to you, but we're going to go do this thing over here and to not feel like you have to win every argument and you have to get every representative elected and you have to part you know pass every bit of legislation that's going to endorse or support what you believe to be a christian point of view and i think that there's a giving up on that that um, approach now critics of this movement will say then it's not going to influence America very much, is it? Because it's you know it doesn't organise, it doesn't have a sense of collectivity. I mean, you could be in a dinner church like across the road, and I wouldn't even know with my dinner church. Like, and there, that's true. There is a there are attempts by groups like uh, Underground Network and um, the Microchurch Network and Parish Collective. There are a few networks that are trying to bring them out, not not to do anything with them, but just to say, here, register yourself on our website, on our map, so that mm. people can start to see these things are happening. I mean, Parish Collective, their slogan is to be rooted, that is like deeply embedded in a particular place, and connected, so connected to other like-minded mm. groups around the country that are doing the same kind of thing, not so much for activism or for collective activity, but to know what others are doing and be encouraged by it. Yeah, no, to be reminded of of the communion of the saints and to, to be reminded that we're all in this together. Uh, you also mentioned, and I'd be curious, um, sort of slightly off of what we've been talking about, but you talk about re rediscovering enchantment, enchantment in our sort of disenchanted world. Can the table function as a re-enchanting place and if so, in what ways do you see that happening? Yeah, it's not easy, actually, because the impulse when you're around a table is to um, to the, uh, how can I put this, to the kind of the casual, the everyday, relational, mm -hmm. we chit-chat, hey, Andrew, are you new here? Where are you from? You know, there is a kind of a, a an impulse toward the... Um, the kind of casual, uh, friendly interaction and the like. Whereas an, an experience of enchantment is actually a an otherworldly kind of experience. And invariably that is facilitated insofar as it can be through liturgy and a sense of occasion and um, opportunities for us to sense the, the presence of God and the, the power of another world breaking in. And so, actually, it requires some deft kind of choreography by the leaders of the group, mm. because the impulse will be just for us to have dinner and and break bread, take communion, say we love Jesus, maybe sing a song or two, but actually to lead a congregation into an experience of something uplifting, 
something mysterious, some sense of the kind of the beauty and wonder of something beyond what's material and physical actually requires work and leadership. So when I said to you before that in Australia, a lot of people are referring to these kinds of churches as simple churches. I mean, I, I get what they're saying. They have no buildings and no staff and no money and all that kind of business. But um, but it ain't simple. <laughs> it's 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 it takes like very significant uh, elements of leadership and wisdom to be able to kind of shepherd a, a, a dinner church into that kind of space. Yeah, one of my first jobs was at a farm to table restaurant um, as a chef, and the chef was talking to me about the simplicity of the food and saying that the simple food is actually harder to do um, just because, you know, and I've come to realize it too, that you can't, there's no hiding. <laughs> you can't hide behind anything and it takes more intentionality and how to coax out flavors and how to bring out the beauty of a simple carrot versus a braised short rib with 40 ingredients, right. you know? And so I think what you're talking about is as we gather around the table, it sounds nice and simple but how to lead people into an experience of the otherworldly um, and to lift our eyes above, above the food while still relishing the food. Um, that's a hard task. Yeah, it is. In fact, I read a review of a, a restaurant recently where they were like saying, what is it with the wait staff having to explain to you like all the ingredients that are in this meal and that the chef is, you know, from a, Caribbean background and his grandmother taught him this and that's why he does that. Like, why do I need a lecture before I have my meal? But I think in a way, and, and you certainly see this in kind of, uh, you know, those kind of cooking travel shows where people go around and they get the story of the food. There is, a, I think in a sense, that's an attempt to create that sense of enchantment. It's like mm -hmm. this isn't just a meal that I got in a recipe book and here it is for you on the plate. It's a way of saying, actually, you know, this food came from here and it was harvested this way. And my expertise is drawn from my background, which is from there. And there is a sense of wanting to elevate a meal into something which has a kind of a, a slightly enchanted aspect to it. And so, yeah, I didn't like the review for that reason. It's like, I don't want a big lecture before I eat my meal, but I do think there's something kind of quite enchanting about that it's not just uh you know a hamburger or a fast food place i'm actually i'm connecting to the land to history to culture and so yeah i think that we need to figure out ways in which through liturgy and through leadership that dinner churches do something like that i don't mean a description of the ingredients but a reminder of what it why we're gathering and what it's like. And mm -hmm. I mean, the early, as I said to you before, from that Pompeii experience, the early Christians had a real sense of mystery about their meals. So people would sit at their table, I'll get a free meal, but what's this thing you do with the bread and the wine? And why is he speaking a language I can't understand? And there are times when Paul is, as I said before, it pains to say, well, you know, help explain these things. But there was an element of mystery and beauty associated with that. And I don't think we should make it also kind of suburban and and, uh, and and casual that we lose that. And it reminds me, too, of your um, exhortation to, to live in our place, you know, and to be rooted and to be grounded, um, you know, and not to live above place, but to live yeah. into our place, you know, um, to be formed by the stories of our place. 
you know, because I think that does help enchantment in some ways, just because we can then know our story and who we are as a people um, and how we are connected to a broader story. Yeah, uh, absolutely. No. And so, no, this has been a lot of fun and enjoyment. And I love your wealth of knowledge of history. As you think about the church and being a pastor for a few years, it was always hard to get people to do one thing, you know, and our, you know, the demands on people's lives feels overwhelming, you know, and I relate to this as a parent of two small girls and both my wife and I have careers and we're trying to figure everything out. Um, and so the demands are on life are real. If you could exhort Christians to do one thing, what might that be or what might that look like? And I realize it's a big question and there may not be a simple answer, but. Um, if I could exhort them to do one thing, uh, well, aside, you know, from love God and, and, uh, and serve Jesus, in terms of this idea around kind of mission, I would say, yeah, take your place in the neighborhood seriously, get to know your neighbors, listen carefully, practice that kind of holy curiosity I was talking about before, and then be, you know, willing to uh, adapt to the context in which you find yourselves. I mean, when I was, I trained to be a school teacher way, way back in the day. When I went to teacher education training after I'd finished my undergraduate degree, they said to me, we're going to teach you how to be a different kind of teacher to the one that you were taught by. And we're not convinced you're going to, to do it because you're a success story from the old era. Like you, you succeeded, you got through school, you got through university, like, it's going to be take a lot of effort for you to break out of the system that served you in order to teach in a more contemporary way. And I've never forgotten that, and I feel like it's the same thing with Christians. You know, we're success stories. Those of us who are still in the church, who are still loving God, who are still committed to the church, it's worked for us. You know, it hasn't mm -hmm. been perfect, but, you know, it's like I, I found faith in the church, and I've grown in my faith in the church, and I've served in the church. And so to actually dare to do something really quite different, not just for the sake of difference, that's an important point, but in response to the needs or desires or hopes or fears of my neighbours. I mean, that's one thing I think I'd like to encourage us to be open to doing. Can I tell you like a really cool story about a friend of mine here in Australia who he grew up uh, the son of Italian immigrants who owned a market garden and they kind of grew fruit and vegetables and so he grew up you know, on the land, as it were, went to university, studied agriculture, and then felt a call to be a missionary. So he went to Bible college, trained to be a, a missionary, and then went to the Niger Delta in West Africa, thinking he was going to do evangelism and church planting and teach in a Bible college or whatever the case may be. And then when he got there, he discovered um, in Niger, they've pretty much denuded the whole country. They've chopped down every tree. Uh, to just for firewood and just to survive. You know? hmm. And what that's done is it's destabilized the soil, of course. It's now become dirt. And the other thing is there's no shade anywhere at all. And so they can't grow crops. You can't grow crops without shade, and you can't grow crops without stable um, soil. 
And so they've tried to be planting, like reforest the Niger Delta by planting seedlings. And guess what? Mm. They die in the blazing sun. So it's just been a completely useless enterprise. But he gets there and he's got a degree in agriculture and he's grown up on the land. And he said, do you know that all the roots of all the trees that you chop down are still under the ground? Like, And he, the, the, the language he uses is he says there's a forest underground. Hmm. And so he teaches them how to dig into the soil and strike the dormant root system and to to create shoots from the existing root system. And he's actually, it's this is an astonishing story to me, he has actually reforested hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of hectares of the Niger Delta by teaching farmers how to do this. They strike these these seedlings. They grow another forest. Then they can plant their soil. They plant their crops in the soil. And what he's done is he's lifted thousands and thousands of families out of poverty by teaching them to do this. Like he did not go there as an agricultural expert. He, I mean, he is one, but that's not his reason for going. And the thing I love about that story is that when he got there, what was their greatest need? It was, the greatest need was to to actually be able to feed their families. And so, you know, he he uses, it so happens, the skills that he had, not that he expected that he was going there to do that. And so his book about that is called The Forest Underground, and they, they're now doing it all across Africa, this particular method that he's pioneered. But the interesting thing about that is the mission society that sent him and a lot of his Christian supporters back here in Australia have really questioned, like, is this mission work? Is this really what we were funding you to go and do? Like. Weren't you meant to go and evangelize people and teach the Bible and what have you? And so we do need to follow the impulses or desires or needs of our neighborhood. may not be as dramatic as reforesting the Niger Delta, but we also need to be conscious that, you know, we're going to get some flack from other Christians who think that what we're doing is not, you know, proper Christian work, whatever that might be in their minds. And, He's stuck to his guns on that, and he's now becoming quite well known as a real hero around the world, but not as a missionary. If only people had recognized this is actual mission work. Right. Um, to preach good news to the poor, to bind the brokenhearted, to, to, to set free the captives, and to announce the year of the Lord's favor, which was actually about the renewal of the earth as well as the renewal of, of society. Wow. What a great story. Thanks for sharing. Before we end, just want to have a little fun with a few questions, just since we're talking about food. What is one food you refuse to eat? <laughs> um, okay, refuse to eat. I Well, in Southeast Asia, there's a fruit called a durian, which is actually quite sweet to the taste, but smells like vomit. And yep. I, I have tried. I cannot eat it. But, and I hate to tell you this as an American, but the other food I really do not understand is collard greens, biscuits and gravy. I don't get that kind of food. It, it, I'm sorry. It's just like I ate biscuits and gravy once and I just felt like, you know, I had this rock in my stomach. <laughs> yeah, most Southern food you don't eat and feel great about. Right. yourself afterwards or you feel great but you don't want to go run a marathon right. anytime soon yeah. but then along those lines what's one of the best things you've ever eaten 
oh, I wish you had have told, told me this before we met because I, I am sure I could think about some great things that are not going to pop into my head right now, the best thing I've ever eaten. I was in South Africa at a winery and I think I had the best steak I've ever had and the best mm. pinotage, which is a, a red blend um, grown mainly in South Africa. Uh, that stands out as an, you know, just an astonishing, beautiful meal. Mm. Um, oh, what else? I mean, I love seafood. I love um, oysters, prawns. Mm. And, you know, you don't have to do much to those to, to have them be delicious. No, yeah. for sure. And then finally, one last question. There's a conversation among chefs in the world about last meals. Like if you knew you were going, if this was going to be your last meal, what would it be? And, and so I'm curious, if you knew you only had one meal left to enjoy, what would your meal of choice be? Um, I often think about this and think, would you be able to even eat a meal if it was your last meal? But I get the point. So what was my, my last meal? I think I would have a, uh, a Lebanese banquet, a Lebanese, you know, banquet of, you know, hummus and lamb mm. and, and uh, tabbouleh and, you know, the whole, the whole thing, pita bread and, yeah, baba ganoush. I think I'd have a, like a really tasty Lebanese platter. I feel like there's a story behind that for another day, but I uh, really appreciate you joining me, Mike. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, where, where can they find you? Uh, I have a website, which is mikefrost.org. And um, yeah, they can grab me there. Awesome. Thanks again for joining me. Uh, this was a lot of fun and it was a real privilege. And thanks for joining us on this episode of The Biggest Table, where we explore what it means to be transformed by God's love around the table and through food. Until next time, bye. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and reviewing The Biggest Table. Also, please share it with others whom you think would enjoy it as well. Until next time, may you find something beautiful at the table, whatever you are eating, with whomever you are sharing it with. Bye.